Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron, and with me is Adam Pawatic. We're recording live at the Global Property Market as part of our Informa-sponsored forum series. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Karthik Shankaram, the senior strategist at Eurasia Group. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. So I'm going to put a, I don't want to say it a warning, but I'm going to put a sort disclaimer of a disclaimer out there for our listeners. This will be a different vibe of our podcast. Karthik sat down and the first thing out of his mouth was, I know nothing about real estate, which I'm sure is not true. Then Aaron said, neither do I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Karthik's focus is really more on sort of geopolitical forces that impact sort of what's going on in the world economy. We will try our best to weave it within the context of the Canadian real estate marketplace. But appreciate we're at the global property market. So we thought it was only appropriate that we have a, a discussion about what's going on globally with the economy. And then those listeners, you can take from that and apply it to whatever impact that you think it has on, on real estate in your particular sector or market. So before we get to all of that, Karthik, you know, we always start these off with kind of a background story just to get a sense of who you are and how you ended up where you are today. So why don't you tell us kind of, you know, how you ended up doing what you're doing? The short answer is a series of lucky breaks. It always is. It always is. Yeah. This isn't a prison podcast. No. It's a series of unlucky breaks. Yeah. No, I, I actually, I was, a, I grew up in India. I, I trained as an Italian historian, you know, after of my course. States. Yeah, I, I, I think it's that of you. A 19th century Italian historian. And about nine-tenths of the way through the process, I realized the only jobs for Italian historians exist where an Italian historian is either retired or died, which kind of constricts your job opportunities so I decided to try something different. I became a journalist focusing on emerging markets. And then I ended up in finance on a currency trading desk. First as a strategist, then went to a global macro hedge fund where I focused on kind of rates and currencies. And then after doing that for about 20 years, I decided to want a change of pace and went to the Eurasia Group, which is the world's leading geopolitical risk advisory firm. So we look at national politics, global politics, how they interact uh, and the impact on financial markets and our clients, our corporations, banks, investors, and so on. And it's great because now I get to do all the things that I've kind of done over the course of my life. There's the history stuff, the politics stuff, and the finance stuff. I don't have a single country silo. Instead, I kind of just look at the interaction between markets and political, geopolitical issues. Very interesting. So, I mean, Adam and I are well beyond our own scope here. So I, I'm going to let you kind of lead us, Karthik. I also majored in Italian history. <laughs> yeah, sure you did. Eating pasta every night at, <laughs> yeah. at school doesn't count, Adam. That's why I got into it, frankly, the food. <laughs> yeah, but he's eating craft dinner, not, not Italian food. So I saw your, your presentation earlier today. You had a number of different themes, but why don't we start with the kind of risk advisory services that you do for your clients. And maybe, let's say I'm, I'm an investor looking to enter another region or enter more diversity geographically. How do you kind of start that conversation with those clients? Well, I think one of the things that investors look at in general is you want to look at growth prospects, you want to look at political stability, and you want to look at, narrowly speaking, the regulatory environment, but above and beyond that, the governance environment. And one of the things about highly desirable markets is that they present some combination of those things. And it's entirely possible that you could have a low growth economy that has very solid governance and is an attractive place to be which then flourishes as a real estate market. You think about a place like Geneva, for instance, yeah. that fits that bill. And one of the interesting things about, and I'm going to dive into an area I know nothing about, 
but Canada is. It's actually, it's interesting because it combines, it seems to combine from what I've seen on my few trips here, it combines a period of strong growth, you know, during the commodity boom, but now the heat's come off a little bit on the commodity side, but you still have very, very strong credentials in terms of governance and stability, which matter enormously, as well as openness. Can I tell a anecdote now? Yeah, go for it. Uh, a few years ago, I was here with my family and we rented an Airbnb in one of the brand new towers. I forget where it was. I don't think it was that far from here. It was on more residential stretch of Bay. It's this 45-story building and we get into the elevator and we notice a remarkable number of young people live in the building. And it's mostly one and two bedrooms. And many of them appear to be the recent immigrants or people who have come to Canada. And it turns out that it's close to the university. It's a great place for parents to buy properties for their kids while they go to school here. So that's essentially the sum total of my experience of Canadian real estate firsthand. But it's also a story about exactly the kind of thing that makes a place or one set of things that make a place desirable. You could also have strong growth, which is true in India, for instance. Strong growth, clearly not up to Canada on kind of the governance and transparency front, but that makes it another really interesting market just because you have people going there to capture the growth. So different things in different ratios, but some combination of those three, I would think, is what makes it. I don't understand this, and I'll just be honest, but I always hear smart people say, follow the capital flows. What does that mean? You want to go where the money is going, basically. So because... the, where, is, where is the money going? Where do you see the money going right now? I think Asia. My presentation this morning, I kind of opened with the theme that the global center of gravity of growth is shifting to Asia. That's one of the big things that's happened over the last... And that's not just China. That's not just China. Define Asia, maybe, for our listeners, what you mean. Um, Because India there, too. I mean, I saw you you have a 7% growth you're predicting next year, which is one of the larger in the global comparison. Yeah, absolutely. The IMF is predicting that. I don't think we'll get there, but we'll, you know, if we come in at six, it's still... Really strong. it's, It's still really strong. What happened in 2010 was that kind of the large economies of Asia together by which you mean China, Japan, the ASEAN countries, kind of Indonesia, Thailand, Korea, and India, surpassed the U.S. in terms of nominal GDP and current dollars. And we've always kind of thought about the U.S. as the largest economy in the world, and it is as a single country. But now you have this region, this highly populated, fast-growing region, whose economic weight in the world is actually now above that of the U.S., and also these two countries kind of face each other across the Pacific. So what's happened is that the center of gravity of global growth is moving east, it's moving towards Asia, and it's kind of anchored in the Pacific Basin. And part of this is a function of what's happening in Asia, part of this is a function of what's happened in Europe, which remains wealthy, but is essentially a slow-growing, mature place. So are there any economies within that group, within Asia, that you're seeing kind of having exceptional inflows of capital or is it kind of spread out all around? How do you see the distinctions amongst those unique countries? I mean, I think in terms of, I don't honestly track the cross-border flows into single markets as much, but I do think that just on the basis of where you're seeing a lot of activity based around economic prospects, India is now very interesting. It's very exciting. Korea and Japan seem to be somewhat more mature markets, but they're still doing okay. China is an interesting case, which has, you know, growth is slowing, but still going to be pretty fast. But it's also embarked on this process of urbanization that a good chunk of it is true, but there's still more left to come. And one of the other presentations this morning was very interesting about 
China not just urbanizing, but now going more into upgrading the quality of its urban infrastructure, which augurs well for the future. The thing is, this comes in a market or in a country where there's been a lot of reliance on real estate investment to kind of stoke the economy. So there are concerns about overbuilding. There have been these concerns for a long time, these kind of ghost cities in Mongolia kind of stories that are out there. But still, that said, just a combination of growth and upgrading, I would think that certain kind of top-tier markets in China would continue to see interest. The question there perhaps is more one of valuation. Sure. We're talking about uh, capital flows to Asia. Where's the money coming from? which people are exiting which markets to redirect their efforts to the higher yielding Asian markets? A lot of it is, I mean, this is a world where people are, investors are confronted with extraordinarily low interest rates around the world. So I think just in economic terms, there's low interest rates, low rates of return kind of direct themselves into certain kinds of assets that benefit in, you know, people say the you know, real estate is good as an inflation hedge, but it's also good as a hedge when nothing is moving because you get paid a steady coupon when some places are charging you money to keep money in your bank accounts. So I think it's investors seeking a degree of return that comes partly from growth and partly from rental yield. And I think the other issue is that real estate also kind of benefits from the perception, particularly in certain cultures, of being solid. It's not mobile. You can see it. And so there's kind of a cultural instinct in some places to just look for real estate as a solid investment. It's true in Asia, it's true in China, it's true in parts of South America and also in Southern Europe, for instance. I've got an anecdote to add to that one, which I find is interesting. And I might have said it before on the podcast, but I've got family in Turkey, so I've been and visited there and driven through the countryside, across the country. And you'll find half-built buildings in lots of places throughout Turkey. And the logic is whenever you have a dollar, go and buy a brick. Because that yep. brick basically hedges against inflation. That dollar will be worth 90 cents tomorrow, but that brick will be, still be worth a brick. And so people will build houses over decades <laughs> as they slowly <laughs> accumulate the material needed to build that building. Particularly with the Turkish lira, the problem is yeah, more well, that the lira might be worth 50 cents. This was, this was actually you know, almost two decades ago before all of you know, that. But, but nevertheless, yeah, this, it remains true. Obviously, global trades are making the newspapers a lot. You know, more locally, obviously with the trade wars going on between Trump and China, but in a global context, given the theme of our conversation, how do you see that impacting capital flows? Well, it's interesting because there's an awful amount of uncertainty in trade. And some of this is a result of President Trump's own predilections. You know, his views on China in some sense are formed in the context of views about Japan 30 years ago. He dislikes trade deficits. He dislikes people selling us and by us, I mean Americans. He, he dislikes people selling us cars, not buying our cars, all this other stuff. But above and beyond this, I think there's also a number of tensions in the U.S.-China relationship that come from the fact that two very large portions of the global economy kind of facing each other across the Pacific, the largest and the second largest economy, now kind of into that relationship, which was once kind of complementary and contested, but complementary, now becoming much more confrontational on multiple levels, on an ideological level, on a strategic level. And trade is just a part of this. Now, the reason this kind of feeds into the property story is because it's about a lot of what's happening in the trade agenda affects supply chains. And what the U.S. is seeking to do is to replace or redirect supply chains in many critical industries away from China and to have them either move to another country or to move 
to the United States. Interesting. So it's not even to redirect that back to his own economy. He just does not want China to have it. Well, that's part of the problem. There's some ambiguity here kind of within the administration because there's three groups within the administration. I call one group openers, right? People like the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin are like, okay, we'll use the threat of tariffs. They open their economy. Everything will be fine. There's another group that are decouplers. They're like, okay, the U.S. and China are destined to be adversaries. We cannot be buying all the stuff from them. We cannot be sending them our most advanced technology to make stuff for us. And they're cheating anyway. So let's decouple. Let's kind of cut out of this relationship. A third group is what I call repatriators. These are the people who say, okay, it doesn't matter whether we're making stuff in China, whether we're making stuff in Mexico or making it in Vietnam. All of this is bad for American workers. And kind of given the president's own personality, it's not entirely clear which of these groups is going to dominate on any given day. What that means from the point of view of capital flows is that obviously you could argue there's some trend that says U.S. exposure to China and China exposure to the U.S. is going to be diminished for political and geopolitical reasons. Let's draw the consequences of that in terms of commercial real estate, logistics, all this other stuff. The question is, where do you go? Do you go to Vietnam thinking it's the place that most closely replicates what China offered 20 years ago before we were adversaries? And the answer I mean, it's is cheap labor. It, well, it's cheap labor, good logistics, and a governance system that corporations like. Quasi-stable. Yeah. yeah. The problem is, what you don't know is if the U.S. trade deficit with Vietnam blows up tomorrow, whether we're going to put tariffs on Vietnam. And that's this kind of uncertainty between whether the U.S. is going to decouple just from China or from every place else. As an aside, we're seeing this in multiple areas, right? So it's not just about supply chains. It's about the movement of technology and the creators of technology. So one of the effects of this is to make it harder for researchers in advanced technology coming from China to have access to U.S. facilities. And some of this stuff spills over into other places because these collaborations will likely continue. They may just not be allowed to happen in the United States. And the good news for Canada is that it's potentially one of the leading beneficiaries well, just of this couple, kind of decoupling. Just a couple of days ago, was it Huawei that, that announced that they, well, at least he wants to move one of his research hubs or main research hubs out of the U.S. into Canada? I mean, maybe also an effort to yeah, affect the release. Yeah, there are a lot of reasons for that, but, <laughs> but sure. But, you know, yeah. but, but I think it's definitely the case that uh, the perception that Canada affords many of the benefits of the United States in terms of certainty, entrepreneurial culture, highly advanced research environment, particularly in technology, while at the same time being maybe somewhat less susceptible to the geopolitical tensions between, between the U.S. and China. And, you know, Vancouver is, what, a half hour from Seattle? <laughs> yeah. It's a pawn jump, that's for sure. Yeah, real close. Very interesting. Near the end of your presentation, you kind of got a little bit rushed, unfortunately, but you had you kind of presented these macro themes. One of the ones that I, th I thought was very interesting, and this is more American context, but just talk about density and the impact that has on sort of political forces. Unfortunately, this is a radio, not TV, or you know, podcast, not a vidcast. There's this wonderful map. We will put it in the show notes if we can get a copy yeah, from you yeah, yeah. so that people can go and take a look at yeah. it. Yeah. The single best predictor of political affiliation in America is population density. And the way you see this is if you look at you know, a map that I hope you can see or you can find it online, is urban areas vote for the Democrats and 
the ex-urban areas, not even the suburbs. One of the big changes in U.S. politics is the extent to which these kind of wealthy suburbs have become democratic that were once Republican probably 25 years ago. So this is big, quite apart from the polarization of U.S. politics, which is very evident right now. There's also been this kind of reshuffling of political affiliation where the upper middle class professional and managerial classes have to a significant degree become much more democratic than Republican, while the base of the Republican Party, its most loyal voters, not to say that the party is just that, are kind of rural and exurban people, often with high school or not full you know, college educations. And where this shows up is, and this also kind of coincides with a map of the winners and losers from the globalization of the last 30 years. Because obviously some cities have done poorly. You think about Buffalo, they still vote for Democrats. But consider California, which is the home of Ronald Reagan, and Arnold Schwarzenegger is now one of the areas that's benefiting the most from this kind of trans-Pacific economy that we talked about, this kind of symbiosis economically that's not contested between the U.S. and China. California is one of the big winners of that. California sent six Republicans out of 54 back to Congress next year. So density and kind of integration with the global economy has become a pretty strong predictor of where you vote, of how you vote, rather. So there's kind of this national and global politics of Density. I think one of the other ways this shows up is that dense environments typically need more infrastructure to maintain them. So that creates this kind of high-tax, high-service, high-income ecosystem that Democrats tend to be more comfortable in because the link between taxes and the public goods received is possibly clearer in very dense urban environments because you see it all around you. And I think that's interesting. That kind of plays back into one of the issues there is that these kind of superstar cities that have arisen from this process of globalization and kind of the regentrification of the urban center is kind of complaints that this is making these cities unaffordable to many of the people who provide the essential services. As an anecdote, when I lived in New York City, we had a very good public school that my kids went to. They kept losing teachers because they couldn't afford to live there. So now there are two big fights happening within these dense urban areas, or maybe three fights. One has to do with increasing density, increasing housing stock. The second is a movement that says that even if you do that, the rents are going to be too high, so we need more in the way of rent control, as Rosemary Phoenix said. And the third one in these kind of super global cities is a backlash against foreign investment in their local property markets saying, this is what is driving the unaffordability, at least in part. And my understanding is the Canadian context that's been particularly pronounced in Vancouver and mm-hmm. perhaps in Toronto. The decoupling well. of income to valuations. Yeah. 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 You mentioned global super cities. I know Toronto's always got a, a complex one way or the other about we're, uh, we're not worthy or no, we're, we're going to be future superstar city. How does Toronto rank you know, globally when you're looking at other superstar cities, Toronto or Vancouver, the two biggest cities in Canada, are they ever part of the, the conversation? I think Toronto probably more so. But I mean, they both have these, again, this is, you know, someone speaking as an outsider, but the kind of requisites of these superstar cities are, you know, an ability to connect well with the knowledge-based service economy, which is the product that, you know, because of the fiber optic revolution can be kind of transported easily and cheaply. 
But at the same time, it's very important from point of view of human interactions for it to be concentrated. And I think that's one of the functions, that's one of the reasons why this kind of new spatial organization has occurred. You can send orders to you know, a factory in Shenzhen or Mumbai as easily as you can send them to Toledo. I don't know what the equivalent is in the Canadian case because communication and information is so cheap. And yet there's still no substitute for face-to-face contact. So services have remained concentrated while kind of production has become dispersed. And in that context, what you need is a lot of things that make some cities attractive to those professionals. You need a good university system. You need good schools. You need good transit. You need a place where people want to be. Frankly, you need good weather, which might be one of the shortcomings that Canada has. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> December icy? Fine. For certain people. But, but I don't think it's an accident that you have all these companies kind of looking here, including American companies in the IT industry, kind of looking at Toronto as a place that has all the requisites. It's cheaper. It reminds them probably very much of places south of the border. And yet, given various political turns, may actually be somewhat more hospitable to this kind of cross-border services business in a new environment. We, don't, we certainly don't have the polarization in our politics that you guys do. I mean, whether it's red or blue or orange, I guess, it has very little impact on sort of the, yeah. the, the outcome of your day-to-day decision-making. Well, I mean, the other thing I've noticed, and I don't know if that, you know, this is kind of maybe more superficial, but one of the distinctions you see made quite regularly in U.S. political discourse between real America and fake America. And fake America, by implication, is large, densely populated cities, either in the Northeast or on the Pacific Coast. I don't really know that there's a discourse about real Canada versus fake Canada, because almost all of Canada is urban. Yeah, absolutely. But let's do one more topic. You had three macro themes. One was density, which we've, we've kind of covered. One was technology. We've covered technology quite a bit on this podcast. The third one, I think, is kind of interesting, and hopefully you'll find it interesting also. I'm assuming you will because it was your, your theme. <laughs> it's climate change. Yeah. And how does, how does climate change impact the studies you've done, the advisories that you give to your clients? Then maybe if you can tie it into commercial real estate somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, climate change is rapidly climbing up the agenda of things that people are, people are concerned about. And it ties back to questions of infrastructure and also to questions of how good the old infrastructure is versus what the new infrastructure might look like in a way that has fewer negative externalities from the point of view of the climate. So there's obviously huge investment here that needs to be made. I don't know if it's going to be made or not. Part of this is going to be about not so much kind of refitting or renewing our infrastructure to make it more adaptable to climate change and to make it less responsible for climate change, right? That's going to be one part of the equation. I think it also potentially feeds back into the density conversation because to the extent that transportation is one of the drivers of carbon emissions, does climate change in and of itself lead to new discussions about density because you want to make living ecosystems, urban areas, much more environmentally friendly? So I think that's going to be another part of this. A third issue that I think is very interesting has been the reaction of different portions of the financial industry to this. The central banks and Mark Carney, former governor of Bank of Canada, now Bank of England, soon moving somewhere else, has been very, very vocal about the need for banking regulators to focus on the climate impact of investments in general, some of which, from the point of view of banks, will be real estate investments as well. And 
the regulators are kind of taking a couple of steps forward, but there's pushback. Well, this you were drifting from our mandates. We shouldn't be doing this. You're going to end up with you know banks making dumb decisions because it's politically correct, etc. The interesting thing, and I see this firsthand, is that the insurance companies are moving much, much, much faster because they're the, bearing the loss of of climate change impact. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, I live in California now, and a bunch of major insurers will not insure. I mean, the underwriting standards. And the wildfire danger is so high. We're not touching this place. And I think that's a very, very interesting dynamic when one portion of the financial industry is ahead of the other, but they're closely intertwined because an insurance company's liability can be a bank's asset. And if the insurance company kind of says, we don't want to insure this, the value of the asset itself changes. So the way the incentive structures work on both sides, I think the market may be doing something that the regulators already, the regulators want to do in the future. Very interesting. You know, I said it was one last question, but I've got one final question, Karthik, before we let you go. We'd be remiss not to talk about sort of interest rates and, and in a global context and, and maybe just kind of talk about what you're seeing in your research and how interest rates are impacting investment strategies and capital flows and kind of anything else that we've kind of talked about today. A lot of what we've been doing is looking at the Fed and the dollar because that's kind of the most important. The global center of activity might, might be moving towards Asia, but the center of financial activity kind of remains the Federal Reserve. The dollar and U.S. interest rates are kind of the most important benchmark price in the global financial system. And what's really interesting here in the context of kind of low interest rates, there are two things here. One is that after the crisis, you had this extraordinary response by the central banks and by fiscal authorities. And everyone said inflation. Some people said hyperinflation. Ten years later, it didn't happen. That inflation, which didn't show up in goods prices, may have showed up at other things, such as asset prices, including real estate. And that's an argument that, that some people make, and I think it makes sense. The question that you have to think about is, what changes that inflation dynamic? Does anything bring inflation back into the system again? And my personal view is probably not right now, because there's still a bunch of excess capacity out there. And the desire of these so-called bond vigilantes to hold governments to hostage simply doesn't exist. That's one part of it. So it's not just what happens with benchmark rates, but also bond investors panicking about inflation. Even in the instances where you've had some increase in inflation, investors have shown they'd rather bear negative real interest rates than kind of unload bond portfolios. So that part's been relatively stable. The other part of this I think is very interesting is we're seeing a very, very different Federal Reserve right now from what we saw until 2008. And the change arguably even came slightly later. The U.S. Federal Reserve, one of the reasons we're asked about this as a politics firm is everyone says, people say, Trump keeps tweeting that the Fed should lower interest rates. Are they reacting to him? And my answer is no. The interesting thing about the Fed is they've come to a set of conclusions independently of the Trump tweets that kind of lead you in the direction of low interest rates. One is their chagrin at basically having been wrong about how low unemployment could fall without creating inflation. And they've kind of done a mea culpa for that. Well, we were wrong about the fact that you could run 3.7% unemployment without generating inflation. And we will keep that in mind for the future. So that's number one. I think the second thing that they're saying, and this is an institution that's not political because of Trump, but it realizes that it operates in a political context where sometimes it's not that popular. And they're saying, it's fine if wages rise faster than productivity because they have been below productivity for so long. It's got good distributional effects. It's very healthy. Again, a big shift. The other things have to do with the role of the Fed in the international economy. 
the Fed, to a much greater degree than I think most other institutions in the United States, have internalized this model of a world in which growth is driven by Asia, but global monetary settings are determined by the Fed to some degree. So what they're doing now is internalizing into their reaction function what happens in Asia into their interest rate settings because they're saying, okay, China's slowing. Maybe we should be not hiking rates as fast. Just acknowledging, acknowledging the link. Acknowledging the link and making it show up in their rate policies. And that's a very big shift. You know, the argument always was, you know, we run monetary policy only for the United States. And they say that, but what they recognize now is that the real impact of what happens overseas spills back into the United States to a much greater degree than they thought previously. Wow. That was a lot. Yeah. This is all stuff that's not normally in our wheelhouse. It's kind of nice. Very interesting. Yeah, that's wonderful. Make the link just for the listeners. You know, what you're talking about is the impact that the Fed decisions have on international interest rates, right? That those decisions that they make will have a trickle-down effect to all other decisions by all other sort of but central central governing bodies? Many of them. And it's partly here because of the interest, but also because the dollar. The dollar is the most important cross-border currency in the world. 60% of all cross-border lending happens in dollars. A huge amount of invoicing happens in dollars. So what ends up happening is when the dollar gets strong, it impacts inflation in some countries where people kind of look at the dollar, the local exchange rate as an index of future inflation because oil is priced in dollars. So if, let's say, rupee depreciates against the dollar and oil does nothing, the rupee price of oil has gone up. So people say, oh my God, Indian inflation is going up. So the dollar kind of creates this fear of inflation in India that can force their central bank to react. The other thing it does is because so much cross-border borrowing happens in dollars. If you borrowed when the dollar was cheaper relative to your currency, and now it's more expensive. You have to pay back more in real terms. So all those factors, I think, have now become a much bigger influence on how the Fed thinks about its role in the world, and it's reacting more proactively to that. Or it's being more proactive rather than reacting more proactively. Great. Well, that's wonderful. We'd like to thank Informa for having here at the Global Property Market. I'd like to thank our sponsor, First National. I'd like to thank Adam, of course. You're welcome. Um, and thank you, Karthik, for coming on. A very, very fascinating topic. Something that we don't cover often or if ever on this podcast. So thank you very much for your insights. Thank you so much. Pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.